Police Department, I would like to report a crime. The comedian Lauren Lodudice hacked into my brain and wrote a book called Inside Melania, what I know about Melania Trump by impersonating her. What does she know about me besides for stepping into my skin for the last three years and her impersonation? You can find the book that me and Donald do not want you to read at www.insidemelania.com. The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. This is episode 124 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category 4. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. On this show, my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren Lajudice. Today, we're going to speak with special guest, Dr. Sema Sagayer of the Sergo Foundation. But first, let's go to our Stupid People stupid segment. People segment. For those of you who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity. Because what unites us across all boundaries, what unites the world, is that we hate stupid people. My dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and we rate their assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People with my dad, Charles LeJudice Jr. Scam calls, yeah, well, I hang up on them. You get the shit that, oh, you're, you're uh, 2007 Hyundai Azera. You, you, you have not uh, signed up for the, you know, increased uh, maintenance yeah. Uh, thing. Yeah, well, jerk off. Here's my message. I hit the button and I say, I don't have the fucking car for fucking five years now, moron. You know what I mean? But most of the stuff I don't, and I'm glad that they do put up potential scam now yeah. on, on a lot of phone calls. But, you know, it's just crazy. I get people calling and they're talking in Chinese, you know? Yeah. I, I just tell them, your shirts will be ready tomorrow. And I hang up, you know? They're annoying. I, I mean, I had a guy, he was from somewhere, uh, he, he sounded like he was probably from, um, you know, Nigeria or something. And he's telling me, that I won the publisher's clearinghouse, you know? They're gonna give me, you know, uh, $1,000 a day for the rest of my life, you know? And he wants to know, well, what color balloons? I want them to come with the car and everything. But in order to be eligible, I gotta go get one of these uh, cards and load it up with $500 and and give him the number and, and mail it to him. And, you know, he says, you know, what kind of balloons do I want? I says, why don't you take one of the big balloons that Macy's uses in their Thanksgiving Day Parade, and after it's fully blown up, without any Vaseline, shove it up your ass, I told the guy, okay? And I hung How up How many rectums would we give that? Well, th- that's a five, because first of all, the guy can hardly fucking speak English, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm going to give send him a fucking card for $500, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm not in the fucking old age home yet. You know what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah. Wow. People are so stupid. This episode is brought to you by TheMelaniaShow.com. Get your Vote 2020 button and become part of the Orange Resistance. 
Help get the orange stains out of the White House with a Vote 2020 button available at themelaniashow.com. Let's go to our interview with special guest Dr. Semisagayer of the Sergo Foundation. Dr. Semisagayer is co-founder and executive director of Sergo Foundation, a privately funded action tank whose mission is to bring precision to solutions that save and improve lives by integrating behavioral science, data science, and artificial intelligence. Previously at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, she led large-scale health programs in India and Africa. She is faculty at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington. Her interests include methodologies to understand human behavior, novel data systems and analytic approaches, and management practices to drive innovation within large-scale global health programs. She was selected as a rising talent by the Women's Forum for the Economy and Society. She is on the board of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Alumni Network. Sema has a PhD in neuroscience. Now, if you're wondering what hope is there in a pandemic that is raging on, you'll want to hear this episode. And you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host, Melania Trump, we're going to talk about science today. How do you feel about that? I'm not intimidated by science. I make up my own facts. Yeah, and all the facts that are inconvenient to you are fake news. Yes, and grounds for lawsuit. I'm so glad you use your privilege for good, Melania. I need something to do when I'm not dealing with the I don't give a Christmas stuff. All right, let's go to the interview with Dr. Semisagayer of the Sergo Foundation. Welcome, Semisagayer, to Reconcile the Isle. Thank you. Great to be here, Lauren. Great. So we're going to talk about a lot of things. One thing I want to just to start with is because the work that you're doing right now with COVID is coming out of the Sergo Foundation, which you started five years ago. So uh, let us know what you all do. Yeah. So essentially at Sergo Foundation, our goal is really to help partners, governments or other donors design health interventions that really reach the people. Uh, knowing that resources are limited. So the question is, how do we utilize these resources limited to drive the health outcomes that we want? So our niche here is we combine data science with behavioral science to really generate those insights, that valuable information that policymakers can use to design better programs, essentially. That's what we do. Got it. So when people are reading statistics, they could be reading your statistics? Possibly. I would say we provide more than statistics. We actually take those numbers and put them into a valuable, actionable insight. So something that someone can take that number and run with and do something with it. Because that's when you're doing with the CCVI, COVID-19 Community Vulnerability Index. Um, And when you go to the website, there's actually like an interactive map in which people can very concretely interact with the data. Like anyone, literally anyone can interact with your data. So I want to know the story of that. Like how did this happen? Yeah, it's an interesting story. It was like one of those things where you're having a conversation with your colleagues and it turns out to be a world of its own. So um, let's rewind to March when we're all like, you know, dealing with COVID and the world has changed. And here we are, we're a small organization, about 20 people working on health all over the world. And we're like, okay, we, we have to do something. You know, this is really impacting us. It's impacting our family, our community. What can we do? So we essentially decided to like brainstorm for a week and come up with ideas. And 
you know, long story short, what, one of the things we realize is that we know that this pandemic is not going to impact everyone in the same way. Different communities are going to actually come out of it in different ways, depending on their underlying quote unquote vulnerability. And so what we thought would be extremely useful is how can we provide data to policymakers that gives them that predictive power, which communities are actually going to be less resilient to COVID, which means that once COVID reaches them, are they going to have deaths more than others? Are they going to have mental health issues? Are they going to have economic issues? So really, it's about community level resilience. And that's what we ended up developing. So what was that like the brainstorming sessions like? Like, was it like the movies? There's lots of whiteboard, <laughs> lots of people looking like, like very fashionable glasses. Lunch was delivered. Was it like this? People staying up all night, sleeping under the desk. Like, what was it like? Oh, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, kind of and no. It was a lot of Zoom calls <laughs> of people stuck in their homes. But no, it's actually, I mean, I don't want to say fun, but it was intellectually very stimulating because it was really, we had total freedom. Truly, we had total freedom. Everyone had freedom to think and come up with ideas. And there was a lot of brainstorming, a lot of things being thrown. Let's do this. No, that's a bad idea. Let's do that. And eventually, I don't know actually how we landed on this, but someone came up with this and said, what about an index? What if we were able to tell a government person, let's say in Massachusetts, hey, this county is going to have a really hard time. What would that be like? So, so it was a lot of discussion. It was a lot of late nights for sure. My team was exhausted by the end of it, but it was totally worth it. So what did you like, like lock them in a Zoom call and you were like, come up with something now. Like, how does that, how did you get well, Yeah, we, we had a Zoom call every single morning starting at eight o'clock. So it was like every morning we woke up, we got on the Zoom call and we were like ideating, then we would all go kind of one-on-ones or individual thought processes. And then we would come back on an afternoon Zoom call and over, over until we just sharpened the idea. There was a lot of pressure for sure. And the pressure was really because we just wanted to do something valuable. So I think it was good pressure and it was time crunch as well because we also knew we didn't have weeks or months. We just had maybe a week or two maximum to come up with an idea. So did you just drop everything you were doing to do this? Pretty much. Wild. It's like you got the bat call, you know, like the bat was in the sky. You're like a bunch of superhero scientists. And you're like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, literally, yes, we dropped everything we were doing. I mean, for two reasons, uh, not to sound irresponsible, mostly because the whole world dropped everything else they were doing, right? I mean, so we work on health programs in India and Africa and the US, but every single health official, health ministry, you know, non-governmental organization, donor kind of said, oops, we have to like really focus on COVID right now. This is like so important. So it was both a, both a necessity and, you know, an ability to be able to pivot essentially. And then the index itself, how has it been used? The index is being used by, well, let me actually tell you what the index is. is yes. Yes. that work? Because I yes. think that would be helpful. <laughs> so essentially, yeah, as I mentioned, the index basically gives communities a score. So we were able to um, do it for every single state in the United States, which is 50, every single county, which is about 3,000. And we went all the way down to the census track level, which is a community of about four to 5,000 people. And there's about more than 70,000 census tracts in the US. So think of like these really tiny geographies. And we were able to basically take a lot of data and crunch this data and give a score to every single community from zero to one. So if you're closer to one, it means you're more vulnerable. And if you're closer to zero, it means you're not as vulnerable. 
So essentially, we gave the score for the whole of the United States. So you have this, as you said, this map. If you go to the website, you can actually play around. You can look up your own county and see, okay, how vulnerable is my county? But more importantly, you can ask, why am I vulnerable? Because there are many reasons that make a community vulnerable to COVID. So for example, you know, if there's a lot of old people in that community, we know that the death rate is rightly going to be higher. If the health system is not strong enough, we know that they're going to have a hard time actually dealing with all of the large number of cases. But there's also other reasons, right? Socioeconomic, the types of housing that people live in, language, etc. So the beauty of this index is not only does it give you your vulnerability status, but it actually tells you why. And this is really useful for policymakers because then they can figure out what is it that they need to do to actually mitigate. Because this vulnerability score is not a death sentence. It's essentially a valuable piece of information that helps a policymaker say, okay, now I know how I need to help this community. So to get to the question of how is it being used, many different ways. For one thing, you know, if you take it from a state perspective, a state official can say, well, instead of sending every county the same amount of dollars that I would be sending for a COVID response, why don't I send counties that are more vulnerable more money because they're going to need more. So that's an example of New Jersey. We've been working with New Jersey State to help them think through how they can allocate their dollars across, across the state using the vulnerability index. Another way that's it being used is how do I deploy my testing and contact tracing services, right? Which communities need more of this? Another way is actually identifying some of the gaps. So for example, and I can get into this more, you know, which communities are able to social distance or not, which communities actually have enough testing or not, et cetera. So many, many different ways of how it's being used. It's interesting, the idea of a testing desert, which is really hard to understand because being on the East Coast, we can get a test anywhere and everywhere. Tell us what a testing desert is and, and where, where they are. Yeah, so testing, the way we define testing deserts is a particular county that actually does not have a test site. Yes, for someone living like in New York City or D.C., you know, there's tons of testing sites. However, that doesn't necessarily mean you can walk in and get a test site and get it in time. So I think there's a lot of issues with testing. But yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental principle of a testing desert is like you're in a county and there's not a single test site. Um, and these typically tend to be rural counties. So one of the things we identified is that about 40% of rural counties in the United States actually are testing deserts. And the more vulnerable counties tend to be actually more likely testing deserts. So we see this disproportionate, you know, testing desert situation in highly vulnerable counties to COVID. It's wild. 40%. That's yeah. insane. And they're, and they're super vulnerable to COVID. I, I love the, the highest score. So many are in Texas. Yes, the, tex the testing deserts, Texas, well, the, the half of those testing deserts are in Texas, Mississippi, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Missouri. Those mm. states account for about half of those testing deserts that we identified. Now, in June 30th, you spoke about in the Hill, the effect mm -hmm. of COVID uh, disproportionately on rural America, uh, the, the risk, the vulnerability there. Has anything happened, changed since? Yeah, actually... A few things have changed. I, I think we see change, the challenges that we don't see enough change. But for example, if we look at those testing deserts, we are seeing that um, some of those counties are actually now have testing sites. So the number is decreasing, but slowly. 
which is a good thing. I think there is good conversation around how do we solve for these. So models like mobile testing units that are being experimented and also rapid testing. So we are seeing some improvement, but I think the challenge in the U.S. is that the improvement is not uniform, right? You have some states that are doing better and some states that are just not catching up. Now, you gave two examples like uh, Monroe, Alabama versus Juan County, Washington, and how they're two places and they're going to be affected by COVID in two different ways. Can you talk more about that? I don't remember those two examples. Okay. I have to well, look, I, guess, I, can, I can give another I can give Yeah, another or another examples. example of like two yeah. places with different vulnerability index. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think one point that I made is that two counties can be highly vulnerable, but for different reasons. So I'll give you two counties in actually South Carolina. So these two counties are Costilla County and they are Benton County. So both of these counties actually have pretty high vulnerability score, about 0.8, but they're very different. So for example, if you look at Costilla County, that's highly vulnerable because it has low socioeconomic status, which means it's poorer. It has very crowded housing and it has a lot of minorities. Now, the reason why minority populations make a county vulnerable, it's usually because of the language barriers or because of access barriers that these communities have. If you look at Benton County, which is also very vulnerable, but it's for very, very different reasons. It's mostly because of the underlying epidemiological factors, which means that this county has a higher proportion of people that have non-communicable diseases like heart, you know, chronic conditions that we know make people more vulnerable to COVID. And also this county's health system is not as strong. So they actually score pretty weak on the health system. So this is to show you how two counties can be so different and why they're vulnerable and how this information can actually be used by the policymakers. Hmm. And now you sent a white paper to Congress. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, first of all, how do you send something to Congress? How does that work? (laughs) You just... Put it in the mail and, and mail it. <laughs> you just put Congress? <laughs> you, just, you just put Congress. Um, yeah, no joking. <laughs> so we actually uh, did a very interesting, this, is, this was a collaborative effort by a lot of folks in collaboration with Harvard, the Jasper Center for Ethics, and then there were other collaborators from Microsoft, um, Google, et cetera. So it was, a, it was a broad group of individuals and organizations And this was really around testing and contact tracing. So as you can appreciate, testing and contact tracing still has not scaled appropriately in the United States. But what we were trying to really do is knowing that there's so few tests still available in the U.S., give Congress a set of recommendations of how they can do that and where they should prioritize our resources. There was a lot of modeling done, and there was some very counterintuitive findings, actually, that came out of that, which was if you have limited testing and contact tracing resources... And if you want to really save lives, the place where you should really prioritize are those areas that have low COVID prevalence. So not like the New York City who's, you know, exploding, but also high vulnerability because you want to get in there soon and you want to basically stop the epidemic. You want, you want to stop COVID from raging. Um, so that was the, the counterintuitive recommendation that we provided to Congress. And do you know if anyone read it? Yes. Yeah. Um, We know that people read it. And actually, we know that some of these recommendations have been taken up by by certain states, but not at a not at a national level. As we know, we're lacking a national plan. And so who 
responded. Can I ask that question? Yeah, sure. I mean, states like Massachusetts are actually doing a good job in prioritizing vulnerable communities. Uh, other states like Oregon and Washington are also doing a, a good job. So there are good examples. Uh, DC is actually doing, a, DC is not a state, but it's doing a, you know, a relatively good job. So there are some really bright spots in here. And did anyone say thank you at all? You don't really get a, a response <laughs> from Congress. I mean, I mean, to be fair, it goes to a committee, it gets reviewed, it gets passed around, you know. Okay. So I guess in reality, what happens is like the staffers are reading it and then they like give a bullet point summary to the people actually in charge. Is that how this works? I mean, in reality, what happens is that it goes to a task force. It gets circulated uh, among different, you know, state and national officials and, you know, different people pick it up and different people basically take up those recommendations. So I don't think there's one particular path. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Not a lot of federal names in that list of people listening, but that's, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Well, that's just the truth. I mean, it's just, they didn't want to leave, you know, they didn't read it. Okay. All right. So all right. no comment. <laughs> okay. No, no comment. Okay. That's just what happened. This is facts. Okay. Well, there was a success story in dealing with COVID. Um, I believe that was in Rwanda. That's right. Um, can you tell us how that happened? Yeah. How that happened? Yeah. Yeah. Rwanda is, a, is a, a really good example of how in a place where resources are limited, people can make really smart decisions and actions. So one of the things that Rwanda did is this concept of pool testing, essentially you know, again, you don't have enough tests, you need to test people, and then you need to contact trace them. So what Rwanda did is, basically, they would test a group of seven to 10 to 15 people one at a time. So they combine all the samples together. And then if there is a positive in that sample, combined pool sample, then you would then split, it, split those samples and test individually. Essentially, what it does is instead of testing every single person, it allows you to basically use your resources in a smart way. Also, what they did is they did this actually, you know, they would go out to markets, to business places, to, you know, crowded areas, and they would randomly select people into this tool pool testing. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a really, really smart way. Rwanda, I think, has maybe a total of three deaths from COVID, um, some really small, ridiculous number. So they acted early, you know, they did very quick and rapid shutdowns to basically bring everything under control, but also to put their resources into action, and then they were able to actually control the pandemic really well. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's really inspiring to hear about things going well. Um. <laughs> it's great to hear, for me, someone who's worked internationally in public health, it's wonderful to see that those countries can act as examples to, you know, wealthier countries like the U.S. and others. Yeah, and I think Rwanda might have been on the list of shithole countries. So I love that they like kicked our ass in, in stopping it. Um, <laughs> divine. So, so, okay. Now, for ordinary people, like they might see, well, there's the SVI, the Center for Disease Control has an index. Mm -hmm. So why is it, like, I guess we know that there's like factors that you're, they're just not taking into account. Mm -hmm. So is the SVI useful at all then? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the CCVI, the, the COVID vulnerability index, is built on the SVI. Mm -hmm. so, so the SVI was built by the CDC to really, again, ask this question, which communities are vulnerable to disaster? And it could be any disaster, right? It could be a hurricane, it could be a pandemic, it could be, you know, any type of um, disaster. 
So the elements of the CCVI are very relevant to COVID. It's the same factors that actually make communities vulnerability. But COVID also had very specific factors that were not captured in the SVI. And really, these fall into two themes, which we learned very quickly in the beginning. So one is underlying chronic conditions. We know that people that have underlying chronic conditions are, you know, the death rate in those populations are higher, and then the health system factors. So essentially what we did is we took the SVI, the CDC index, and then we built on top of it and added these COVID-specific themes and then created the CCVI. And we followed the same methodology because it was a validated methodology by the CDC. Um, and in fact, what's really great is that the CCVI is on the CDC website as one of the key COVID data sets to be used. So, you know, the CDC is very much aware of our index and is recommending this index for COVID. And CDC staff have also published on the index and has recommended it in, um, to be used for policymaking. So, so I think it's, a, it's, it's great. And you also showed, like, you basically show the numbers. It's publicly available. Like, this is not, like, done behind closed doors. You're like, check the math. Go ahead. Absolutely. Everything is open source. So the data, the methodology, you can go to the website. You can download everything. You can download, you know, individual numbers for each census tract, the underlying data, the methodology. So it's all completely transparent and open source. So then, like, the the CCBI, people listening to this, can they... Mm -hmm. Like, is there any use? Should we be looking at it? Like, you know, should I tell my family members in such county to, to leave? Like, it's, it's, we ha <laughs> I'm thinking of buying a house somewhere. Like, how, how can we use it? Great question. I'm not sure you should use it for buying a house. <laughs> but uh, one way you can use it is actually, well, first of all, you can go in and you can say, well, how does my county fare in terms of vulnerability, right? Is it highly vulnerable, mid-low? Um, you can use it for advocacy, right? Like you can actually use it to advocate with your local and state officials. You can say, this is how we are. This is the COVID status. This is how many deaths and cases that we have. Are you providing enough resources to tackle the pandemic in our county? You know, we have this underlying vulnerability. So I think one very powerful way to citizens can use A, to understand their communities and whether they're vulnerable or not and why, but also to use it for advocacy. Um, we work quite a bit with media, actually, and, and a lot of times media does use it to highlight gaps or to highlight opportunities, um, to make a case to policymakers, and citizens can do exactly the same. And do you think we can use it to help figure out a, what to do about schools? Schools is an interesting question. <laughs> yes. So in the sense that, you know, if you have schools opening, well, I think schools opening is a challenge, right? It's, it's a really, really sticky challenge. It's this, you know, it's this challenge between do we get our kids the education they need in, this, in the setup that they need or do we, you know, do we just shut everything down until we get a vaccine? And I think it's a really, really hard situation. So I think one of the things that people can do is really understand the context they're in and see whether, you know, not only the vulnerability, but also the, the COVID cases, you know, are cases ramping in that community? and then really figure out what policies or what systems they need to put in place into the school and whether they should open that school in the first place in that area. So I don't have a clear answer. I think, I think we need to look into a lot of data, but yes, it could be one definitely data point. Mm -hmm. And for just, because you're a woman of science, um, just to explain to people uh, why herd immunity, Herd humanity, immunity, immunity. humanity, herd humanity. <laughs> Wait, because there's no humanity in this idea. Herd immunity is the answer. 
Just wait um, until enough people get sick so we all have herd immunity. Why that's not a good idea? Well, there's different ways you can actually achieve yeah. herd immunity, right? One way is to say, let's just let, let's just let go uh, and, you know, yeah, just live our lives and people that get sick, you know, get sick. Uh, that's not a good idea because we also know that the infection fatality rate of COVID can be pretty high in certain subgroups of the population. Um, that's one, right? So we know that death rates can be high in older people. We know that death rates can be high with people with underlying chronic conditions. We also know that COVID is not just another influenza. It's not like you get the flu if you're young and then you're fine. We're seeing actually pretty long-term effects of this virus, we are, which we're still trying to figure out. People that may be living with chronic conditions. And then, of course, overwhelming the health system, right, to the point that they're not able to treat COVID patients and other patients. So letting go and just letting populations achieve herd immunity is not a good idea for several reasons. But there's another way you can achieve herd immunity, which is obviously through a vaccine, which is what we're all waiting for uh, and hoping to get. Uh, and we can talk about that. But I don't think those are necessarily the only two options either, right? As we wait for the vaccine, we can do things that allow us to live life in some sort of way, normal way, you know, continue to open the economy and continue to save lives. Things like, you know, wearing masks, things like, you know, not congregating in large numbers. So I think there's a lot of things we can do. I don't think it's one or the other. Yeah. And then some people try to say like, well, you know, if you're young, you're, or you're young, or if you don't have a pre-existing condition, you get COVID, there's a good chance you're going to be fine. However, I think 50% of the people in the United States are obese. So that's a pre-existing condition. So 50% of people at bat, this is not even thinking about all the million of other things like people are sick with, right? Is, is obesity a pre-existing, that, that mm -hmm. can make it harder for you when you have COVID. And that's 50% starting out. So it's almost Absolutely. like not even like subgroups. It's kind of like every, <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people, yeah. There's so many chronic conditions in the population. So it's not like if you're young, you're fine. And then the other thing is that that's you. But when you get infected, you're putting other people around you at risk. Yes. Right? Yes. So I mean, my grandmother had, uh, I believe it was typhoid. I'm sorry, mom, if I screwed this up. She had typhoid and she didn't go to the hospital. You had to be quarantined at the time, but they were Italian and they paid people off. So they were, she was just like at home with typhoid and she got better, but she was wheezing into a, a handkerchief her whole life at least when she was definitely older, like it, she never had great lungs. Like it did, never got yeah. better. So it's just not, it's not really not that pleasant not to be able to breathe. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and we're hearing so many story, I mean, actually cases of people, their lungs not recovering, you know, they're remaining to be weak, weak for weeks, if not months. Um, you know, I think, again, we're still really trying to understand the chronic effect of this infection, which, yeah. which I think is, is beyond what we, imagine it to be. And what about a vaccine? What do you think about that? Well, I think our, a vaccine is a great solution uh, and something we're all hoping for. I, I think there's a couple of things we should be keeping in mind when it comes to vaccines. One is, you know, there are many vaccines and, and candidates that are being, you know, in, in various phases of trials. When a vaccine gets approved, the efficacy may not be very high. It may be 50%, 60% at best. 
The second is we know we're not going to have enough doses immediately. So populations, certain subgroups are going to be prioritized. The third is we also are seeing increasingly this vaccine hesitancy and vaccine selectivity actually happening in the U.S. and other parts of the world. Essentially, people saying, I don't want to take the vaccine or I will not take this type of vaccine. Um, and then fourth, we've seen our government's ability to be able to roll out something at scale, which makes me question how they're going to be able to roll out vaccine delivery at scale. So I think while vaccine conceptually is our silver bullet, I think there are going to be a lot of challenges with actually getting that vaccine out. Yeah, everyone wants a vaccine. Have you heard one person who wants to be the first person to take it? No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's crazy. And I've heard from uh, just some people I know on the inside at a pharmaceutical company, like, we don't have the infrastructure to create enough for everyone. No. I mean, we're, it, they're, they're efforts to, to build that production, um, their investments, but it's not going to be enough doses immediately for everyone. Vaccine is going to be in short supply to start with. It's so interesting. And I can't wait till the anti-vaxxers come out to play. I can't. That's going to be fun. <laughs> well, they already started. But yes, <laughs> that's true. They're going to get more, more. What is it that they all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories? It's just so fun. I love talking to people with, of science about these things. because They're like, what? What? You think what? That, that thing. But people think what? Yes. People think that they're injecting all sorts of mind control substances. <laughs> oh, interesting. I haven't heard that one. That, I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> Someone told me that like, and with a straight face, that there's some sort of little microchip in the virus that implants oh. itself into the brain to control you. That's amazing. We must be all like puppets by now. <laughs> I know. And also like sci is science that advanced. Like if we could do that. that. Yeah, that'd be incredible. And you know, yeah, the vaccine, the vaccine, anti-vaccine is very interesting because I think there is the anti-vaxxer group, which is the extreme. But then there's also a lot of people, what we call vaccine hesitants, right? They may not necessarily fundamentally disbelieve, you know, in vaccines, but they're hesitant, for example, to take a COVID vaccine you know, for a number of reasons, because, you know, in the media, we're seeing like, you know, the president pushing for shortcuts, right? So we're losing trust in the process. Um, you know, we have new types of vaccines being produced, which we never had before. So I think it's really important to understand this well, because we're going to have to solve for this pretty soon. When do you think it would be okay to take the vaccine? Like, when can we get an efficacy of like, comparable to the measles vaccine? Well, the phase three trial, I mean, once, once a vaccine comes out of phase three trial, that essentially is telling you it's effective and it's safe um, in the short term. What we won't have is long-term data, which is like, you know, what happens to someone if they get vaccinated two years down the line? Now, historically, we know that that's unlikely that we're going to have some sort of two-year down the line, you know, negative effect, but that's, that's the kind of data that we're not going to have this fall. Yeah. But we'll definitely have, you know, efficacy and safety data in the short term. Wow. And then how is the COVID vaccine like the flu shot or is it not like, is it like more like the measles shot or is it more like the flu shot or is it the same thing? Well, there is no one COVID vaccine. There's like, I don't know, I don't know, some, I can't remember, like it's in the, it's like in the, in the tens of different types of vaccine candidates. And there are different types of vaccines. So there's something called the RNA vaccine, which is essentially it's an RNA fragment that's going to be injected that will code for you know, a unit of the COVID envelope protein. 
There is an adenovirus vaccine, which is, you know, another virus that's being, um, you know, you, you put kind of the, the COVID code in that virus and inject it into a human. There's an attenuate. So there's so many different COVID vaccines that are being tried right now that we don't know which of those is actually going to be an effective COVID vaccine and whether it will be like a measles or an influenza. We're still in the process. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, so then like a flu shot is just a bunch of different, it's more of a guess of what the strand is going to be. Cause there's just not, I guess it's just more thinking of like a, a host of different types of viruses. Is that it? Well, the thing with the influenza vaccine is that the influenza strain every year changes because it mutates so fast. And so that's why every year you have a new vaccine that's being come up for the strains that are circulating that year. And so, you know, there could be more than one strain circulating. And so there could be a vaccine that's actually encapsulating more than one strain, but you could also be infected by another strain. So it is kind of a bit of a guessing, but it is really about what is circulating in the environment that particular year. And that's why we have to get a flu shot every year. We don't know, but we don't anticipate that to be the case with COVID because we don't see it. But again, we don't know. We don't see it mutating in the same way that influenza virus is mutating. Got it. Got it. And I've heard that like viruses lose power the more they, they more they multiply. So theoretically, eventually COVID will be not as dangerous as it is now. It'll be like the common cold, like years down the line. Is that true? Well, I think it depends. I think partly they lose power in, in, in the way you're saying it is because populations basically have been exposed to that virus and developed some sort of immunity are able to recognize those viruses, even if they change, right? So I think that's what it is. And they may, they may mutate in a way that makes them less deadly, more virulent, less deadly. So I think there's different things that can happen. But one of the reasons they lose power over the years is because we are now familiar with that type of virus and our body is able to recognize and mount some sort of response, even if it's not that specific response. Okay. So it's not like the actual virus itself becomes less deadly. It's not necessarily. Got it. This is helpful. So for example, you know, there's a lot of questions about why in Africa COVID uh, doesn't seem to be as deadly as it is in other places of the world. Um, I mean, one explanation is maybe we don't have good enough data, but we're still not seeing the kind of you know, the scenes that we saw in New York and et cetera in Africa, right? So one, one possible explanation that's been put out and it has not been proved, but just to give you an example, is that perhaps African populations have seen other coronaviruses and therefore their system is able to recognize mm. this coronavirus and has some sort of reaction, immune reaction to it. It's not proven, but I'm just, you know, yeah. highlighting a potential explanation. And you launched uh, the CCVI in Africa, we did. Yes, we did. We did one for the whole of the African continent as well. Wow. How has that been used? Um, how, you know, how are people picking it up? How is that? Like, where do you send, I guess, white papers to all the, the, the people? How does that work? Like, how do you get the word out? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit, that's more recent. We launched it, um, I can't remember, I think three or four weeks ago. Um, so the way we are engaging is we have a number of conversations with different uh, government offices in across the continent. So, for example, one country actually, Nigeria actually has their own COVID dashboard, and they integrated the CCVI into their national COVID dashboard. So they show, you know, it's one data source that they're providing to policymakers in trying to make decisions. And so we're working with a number of different countries to integrate this data into their own uh, data systems. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. 
I'll say that's going to be exciting to see how, how that moves forward. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's absolutely. Really so I have a character named Queens Marie who would like to ask you a question, sort of <laughs> more of just like, she's just so um, awe-inspired. So, um, okay. So I just want to say, like, I think it's really interesting what you're doing, like using like public data to like do things. You're like doing things. You're like not just sitting there like, oh my God, I'm just going to like sit there on Netflix and chill. You're like, we're going to like make it happen. So thank you. Cats off. Next thing is like, I just don't know how you do it. Like, all these people are like sitting around, like talking about like, you know, like COVID like came down from aliens or whatnot or what to what. How do you like deal, like, you know, the data and then people are sitting there like just lying about what's going on. Like, how do you not just like throw your fork at the TV set? So that's why I want to know. Well, I don't have a TV, so I can't throw my <laughs> fork at a TV set. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know... One of the things you learn is that beliefs are so strong uh, and certain people have certain beliefs and you decide where to pick the battles, right? Are you going to pick the battle and trying to change people's beliefs or are you going to use the tools that you have and really work with the people that can do something with it? Um, so I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get this tool in the hands of actually people that can do something with it, whether it is the health person in the Department of Health in a particular state, whether it's North Dakota or New Jersey or whatever it may be. Uh, so I think you just pick your battles. You decide to work with the people that can make a difference and hope that other people come along at some point. Oh, I get it. It's like, it's like you know, you ignore the people who like, who like, <laughs> let's talk shit about you and give you a snake eye no matter what you do. And you just talk to people you like, which is like five people. But anyway, that's for me. <laughs> So listen, so like, I just, I, you know, I have, I have, I have a plan for you. So what we'll do is like, well, my cousins and I will take care of this. So what we're going to do is we're going to take your white paper. We're going to split and I like put a photocopy, like really, really small. And we're going to put it on toilet paper. And then we're going to put it all over the Congress. We're going to put it all over the, the federal, especially all the, the head honchos. You know who you're talking about? I'm going to put all their bathrooms. And so we're going to get them to look at it and don't worry about it. But we got you. We got you, Sama. I love you. I, I love this idea. I think this is, this is the best comms plan anyone has put forward to me. Can I hire you? <laughs> Special Operation Queens Marie. So that's <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Sema. And so, um, how can people follow the work that the Sergo Foundation is doing with COVID and, and the next crisis when you all see the bat signal and you all get together and uh, yeah. save us with data? Yeah, several ways. Well, first of all, you can go to our Precision for COVID website where you can see all of our COVID work. Um, you can also go to the sergofoundation.org website, which has broader work beyond COVID. You can follow us on Twitter, Sergo Foundation. You can follow me on Twitter, Sema Sagayer. Yeah, those are the ways where you can really be up to speed and up to date on all of our work. Great. Well, thank you so much. And obviously, welcome back anytime um, to talk about uh, new work you're doing. Uh, let us all know. Uh, help, help us get learned with facts and data. <laughs> Science. Fun stuff. <laughs> all right. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Sema. Thank you, Lauren. It was a real pleasure. So, Melania, what do you think of helping Queens Murray put her white paper rolls of toilet paper into the White House? Won't make much difference. Donald never takes his eyes off his phone, even when he do the wipe. TMI, Melania, TMI! Why do you think I never hold his hand? Oh my God. All right, so <laughs> for the rest of us, let's think about this. Data can be used to help. Government officials and communities can better understand how to use their resources with a CCVI. There are inequalities which lead to vulnerabilities. This includes testing deserts. And now we understand that 
a lot of people in this country cannot get a test. In fact, 40% of rural counties qualify. Herd immunity is not the answer for the COVID outbreak. And COVID vaccines can help, but expect complications. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care to You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram, at Lauren Logi, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And also on my website, you can find out some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out now, including the audiobook, which is done with my full arsenal of characters. Thank you to our sponsor, TheMelaniaShow.com, for irreverent election merchandise, including a Vote 2020 button and Trump off soap. Get the orange stains out of the White House. Go to TheMelaniaShow.com. Get yours today. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this than by reading the headlines. So, Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care to you about. COVID spikes are happening in over half the country. Over 100,000 people protest in Belarus for the ninth straight day. Ooh. California wildfires now surpass 4 million acres. I have COVID, but I am rich with the best healthcare and facilities, so good luck for that in these shithole places. And most importantly, I don't care. Do you? Thank you to everyone who's made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Mandy McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Hilton, Craig Franton, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Dr. Semisa Geyer of the Sergo Foundation for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks.